Welcome to another episode of the Fifth Quarter Conversations Beyond the X's and O's with Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. And Jeff, I, I would have to say that the, the man we're about to interview has truly been a a hero to me because he is LSU basketball alumni. He is a mentor to me, especially in European basketball, because he's been there, done that, and, and had a huge influence uh, on European thinking, which has trickled down into America. And, and it also really just a friend, somebody that I could call and talk to and get advice from. And that's just how much Coach Russ Bergman means to me. Coach, it's just I, I'm so honored to, to have you on tonight with us to, to, to tell stories and, and to talk about what an incredible basketball journey that you've had. Uh, everything you said, I really appreciate all those uh, compliments. And I really cherish our friendship, Lace, and it's been great. Thank you. So I, I want to start, normally, you know, we, we start, we'll, we'll kind of start with a biography of where you started. And, we'll, and we're, you know, obviously I want to get to that because, you know, we definitely want to hear stories about the, the, your teammate at LSU. But you coached in Russia. And I believe you were the one that told me that there's only been two American coaches who have had success coaching in Russia. It was yourself and David Blatt. Talk about the, the recent news with the invasion of, of the Ukraine your experiences coaching in Russia, some of the stories and, and some of the people that you work with, because these are some these are some names in the coaching world that we're familiar with. Well, I've talked to some people, some good friends of mine in Russia, uh, like Dima Shakulin, who was with us at Hemke, but also was, was with, with Messina at Seska. And uh, he truly uh, hates that they're involved in Ukraine. And I think most people from Russia do. Uh, you know, it's a shame that uh, they've kind of squandered all the free press in Russia. And, of course, Putin does that so the people won't find out what's really going on and some of the evil, bad things that, that he and his staff are doing to the people in Ukraine, especially bombing a lot of the civilian sites and whether it's uh, condominiums or houses. It's mainly high-rise condominiums, but... They don't really check and make sure that that it is military. They're bombing. They basically bomb where they want to bomb. But anyway, the only positive thing that Dima Shakulin said, he said, well, the only good thing out of this coach is the fact that I don't have a good job in Russia right now coaching. And maybe if we can get all the foreigners out of Russia because of this, maybe I'll get a good job again back in Russia. So, Coach, right now, Suska – which is the top uh, top professional club in Russia. Always and had been for like 50 years, if not more. Exactly. And back, back, uh, to, Zena, back, Zena, back, back during the USSR days. Yeah. So both of the teams that were in EuroLeague are, are now suspended. They, they, they're not letting them play in, in those competitions. So, so what do those players do? What do those coaches do right now? You know, uh, I don't know for sure. I know the VTB has been basically shut down also. And so uh, VTB is, is the, is a league that's predominantly in Russia, but it's also some uh, other countries that are surrounding Russia, whether it be Bella Russia or it be Estonia or uh, Latvia, uh, uh, Kazakhstan, a lot of those, countries have one or two teams in the VTB, which is, of course, the VTB is a bank, 
and they're sponsoring one of the big sponsors of the league. And uh, because of what's going on in Ukraine, all the countries that weren't in Russia said we're not playing anymore. So, so what was a what was it like for an American being in Russian professional basketball? I know you you told me the story of how literally all you had to do is walk down from your apartment. There was a car waiting for you, warmed up. You didn't have to like go out and start your car in this this Russian winter and drive to the gym. What was well, that like? Know, and then, then you had an opportunity to work with Sergio Scariolo, who is the Spanish national coach, coach is an assistant coach um, with um, had been assistant with the Toronto, now coaching back in uh, back in Europe. What was that right. like? Well, I tell you what, you you covered quite a few areas real quick there. But anyway. Uh, Sergio Scariola, I worked with him my last year at Hemke, and he wanted me to come back for another year, and I had other things in mind. But anyway, uh, it was a great experience working with him to get his viewpoint, just like I worked with the Lithuanian national team coach and Kastis Kimzura, and also I was brought over by a former Russian national team coach. And also I worked with the current Russian national team coach, uh, Sergei Basarevich. So uh, working with all those guys, it just anytime you work with someone as a in a coaching relationship, whether it's assistant or head or consultant or whatever, uh, you end up sharing your philosophies. And of course, if you're not the head coach, you're definitely going to do whatever he wants to teach and practice. But at the same time, you may have some influence in the office and change maybe the way he's teaching. Uh, maybe a side pick and roll or, or whatever. And so uh, it was great working with people that I could share and bring something to the table that they didn't know. At the same time, they would bring stuff to the table that maybe was something new or enlightening to me, just like uh, the best press offense I love right now I got from uh, Sergey Becerovich. And I never asked him where he got it, but it's a great press offense and it, it, it's the best one I've ever seen against against the press. But anyway, it was great being able to share ideas and work with people, especially because I got to work with Lithuanian and Kastis Kimzura, and I got to work with, uh, you know, some, even though Scariola is coaching the Spanish national team, he's actually Italian. Yeah. But anyway, he did go back to Bologna, and he's coaching a team right now. And uh, and I think they're, his team is ranked, I think, Second or third in in Italy right now, and Messina's these I think is first. So so what was it like coaching against Messina at, at Seska and in the battles between Seska and Kemki as as basically one and two, you know the, the the top top two clubs in Russia. Well, even before I was at Hemke before Messina, you know, arrived there. Okay, and uh, I'm trying to get the coach's name out, the legendary coach. Um, anyway. Uh, we had unbelievable rivalries because they were always one and we typically finished two, at least the four years I was at Hemke. And so we had some unbelievable battles, but I can't say enough about Ettore Messina, what an unbelievable, great, great person and coach that he really is. And, uh, and I learned, you know, a lot of times just like preparing to play uh, Indiana with Bobby Knight just preparing to play their teams, it helps your basketball knowledge. Like I learned from Bobby Knight, just trying to get our team ready to play the Indiana Hoosiers. And same way with 
we always had big gains with Seska with with Messina. So you learn from the way he teaches and the way he, whether it's a you know uh, how he's attacking the zone or how he's playing the zone or how he's like I said how he's defending the middle pick and roll or how he's defending horns or side pick and roll or whatever. So it's it's very enlightening and of course it was new to me when I first went over there that. I didn't realize that a power forward out of the States, uh, if they can't shoot the three, they're going to be coming off the bench at best because they believe in spreading the floor uh, where Mike D'Antoni brought all that to the United States from his playing and coaching in Italy. And that started uh, with the Phoenix Suns and just spread like crazy all over the whole NBA now and college. And that's all anybody runs is his, you know, basically five-out offense. Coach, going over as an American, uh, how quickly are you accepted? Say that again. Going over to Russia as an American, how quickly are you accepted by them? Because I was coming over uh, to help a person that was a general manager and the head coach of a team, and he brought me over to take his team to a higher level. And he knew that he didn't have the basketball knowledge to do that himself. So he was smart enough and even came out publicly and said that in the biggest newspaper in Moscow, Russia, that why he brought me over and how much I've added to their program. And uh, it was great because he was very open about it. But the people with, with me coming in uh, as I don't know if you'd call it a savior, but someone to help take their program to a higher level. Uh, I was put on a pedestal and they treated me very royal, royally. And uh, like you said, I had a, you know, a free apartment and a, a car with a driver. And of course you talk about Russians, you think of the, the cold over there that Russians probably don't mind the cold. They dislike the cold more than we do uh, because whether you're in a car or a bus or in a office or in an apartment or a condominium, they keep it, keep it unbelievable hot, too hot. And, but it's a big, huge change when you step outside for the weather. But uh, anyway, uh, they don't like the cold any more than we do. All right. I want to jump to LSU a little bit and uh, talk about the coach and your roommate. And for those that don't know, one of the Layson and my favorite players ever, ever would be uh, Pistol Pete Maravich. Maybe take us through. Some of our listeners can't understand how talented he was, but maybe talk about how your journey ended up at LSU, playing for press and rooming with Pistol Pete. Well, Coach Mc- Coach Jay McCreary, now. Everybody's heard of Everett Case, who brought big-time basketball to NC State and brought the big North-South tournament. And uh, really, he's the one that really got the ACC tournament uh, to an unbelievable high level, started winning championships. He's the first one that cut down the nets. Uh, And, of course, that spread like wildfire. Everybody does that now when they win a championship. But, But Everett Case, Coach Jay McCreary, at a high school in Indiana and Jay McCreary who recruited me to LSU as a high school player, they won the state championship playing for Everett case. And then 
he was a high school all-stater. And then he went to Indiana, was a, was a college All-American in Indiana when they won the national championship. Well, in the meantime, Everett Case goes to NC State to start coaching there. And, of course, I think everybody knows the history of Everett Case. But anyway, uh, Coach McCreary, after graduating from uh, Indiana, he became a high school coach and ended up at Muncie Central and uh, won a couple state championships before Milan upset him in the, in the state championship game. And that they made a movie out of that called Hoosiers. And in the movie, they depicted him to be a black high school coach from Bloomington Central, not from Muncie Central. And uh, so anyway, he recruited me to LSU. And of course, they made the movie later. But uh, unbelievable, super, super nice guy. I was extremely impressed with him. Uh, of course, when I went down to LSU and, and saw the campus and and uh, the weather and everything was just beautiful down there, everything that I was looking for in a college, it had 16,000 people at that time, but it, it seemed like maybe there was at the most 5,000 people that went to LSU at that time. You could walk out of our athletic dorm that we everybody calls it the jock dorm, and I could walk to the big rectangle there where most of your classes were. It was only like, you know, a block and a half, two blocks away, you know, from our jock dorm. So it wasn't, the campus wasn't all spread out. Like when I was in high school, we'd go to the state tournament, at the University of Illinois. They had over 30,000 people back then in the late, in mid 60s. And everybody was going from one class to another class on a bicycle. That's how big University of Illinois campus was back in 1963, 64, 65. So even though I was offered a scholarship there, I wasn't about to go to University of Illinois. And, uh, uh, and of course, I was also recruited by, uh, by St. Louis U and Bradley and some other uh, universities. But uh, my high school coach thought, you know, the SEC would be a, a good position for me, a good place to go. And uh, I was really impressed with Coach McCreary and his staff and the campus and all the players that were there were extremely uh, nice to me. And anyway, so I signed with there and, uh, it's the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I, I loved LSU. I was there for five years, uh, played basketball and baseball and ran the high hurdles. So it took me five years instead of four, but, uh, I wish I could have stayed 10 years. I've being with Layson, I've learned a lot about LSU. I'll bet. And, uh, it's a, it is a special place. The whole conference is, and, Back then, what was the conference like? Who was on top? Where who were the better coaches at the time? The top three teams typically were Kentucky, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee. Year in year out, they were typically going to be definitely in the top four. And somebody else may sneak in there every once in a while. But those three were you know had Ray Mears at Tennessee, and you had Roy Skinner at uh, Vanderbilt, and you had. Um, of course, Adolph Rupp at Kentucky. And then, uh, oh, gosh, uh, what's his name? His assistant, I think, Vic Buba's assistant. No, no, no. Uh, Frank McGuire's assistant went to – he went from North Carolina as an assistant uh, to Georgia and brought and, and signed a player named Leanhart, who was a 6'10", 6'11", kid. So he kind of started the uh, Underground Railroad. Instead of going to Chapel Hill, he took it all the way down to Athens, Georgia. Uh, so Athens started to become a, a better Florida had, uh, you know, uh, Norm Sloan was down there. They had John Lotz down there and they had Neil walk. And of course, Tennessee had uh, Tom Bullwinkle who played for the bulls. 
And of course, Neil Walk played for several NBA teams. But anyway, uh, other teams would would go up and down, but those three typically were on top. But uh, I know when I my my sophomore year, see, Pete went to prep school, even though he's a couple months older than me. He went to Edwards Military Academy. So when he came down to LSU with Coach Maravich, Coach Maravich uh, uh, brought Pete with him. We, you know, anytime you have a new freshman crop, everybody cannot wait to see how good the new freshmen are. And of course, we'd heard that we're going to have a new coach and that uh, he's got an unbelievable All American son. But, you know, when you hear that, like uh, my roommate in the, in the jock dorm was from Nevada and he was a high school All American. Well, he got teased because we used to say, we've well, only got a hundred boys in the state of Nevada. So it's not really that big a deal to be an all American coming out of Nevada. But anyway, uh, the first time we played a pickup game to see how good the freshmen were, uh, Pete Maravich was in the pickup game. And, and as soon as I tried to guard him and I watched other people try to guard him and the things that he could do with the basketball, besides shooting the basketball, left-hand, right-handed hook shots, bank shots, one-handed shots, uh, two-hand set shots from inside the half court, passes around his back between his legs, blind passes where he would look one way and pass the other. Uh, I knew right then that he was a freshman. I was a sophomore. The next year, I better start learning how to be a very good defensive player because that's the only way I was going to get on the court because they weren't going to bring me on the court to look to score, that's for sure. Was that... I mean, the legend probably grew within your team from that first pickup game that everyone said, okay, I'm going to work on my rebounding. I'm going to work on things. But the legend just grew from that instance. Then how's the dynamic? You see it these days when a player has a father as a coach. You know, coach could get on you. But then when you go to the locker room, players bitch about the coach. But it's harder when it's somebody's dad. Well, Anything really, come really, into that? That's exactly right because uh, I roomed with Legler in the in the jock dorm. But on the road, when we played road games, Coach Maravich put me rooming with Pistol Pete. I don't know exactly why. I guess he thought I was a little bit more mature and that I might look after him. And uh, I don't know if that was the smartest thing to do. But anyway, we had a lot of fun on the road, to say the least not the night before the game, sometimes the night after the game. But anyway, uh, it sometimes uh, it's like walking on eggshells. Uh, but most of the time, uh, number one, I was the type of player that I love practice. And no matter how hard he worked us in practice, that never bothered me. No matter how many suicides, no matter how many steps we ran up and down in the cow palace, uh, that didn't bother me at all. So I never, you know, I love practice. So I was, wasn't one of those kind of guys to complain about practice. And if some other guys, you know, they may say something, well, you know, coach killed us today or whatever. And uh, the only time I remember coach killing us in practice or tried to was when we played Vanderbilt on a Monday night during Mardi Gras and Mardi Gras being Tuesday. And we went down after the game to new Orleans and came back the next day in time for practice. And unfortunately he found out we went down there. So we had track practice that day instead of basketball practice. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Pete as a freshman, 
you know, he scored 50 points his first freshman game. And, and the word had leaked out that, that he was a heck of a player. So I don't know if there was 11,800 people his first freshman game, but if there wasn't, every game after that was packed as a freshman. I mean, every game packed. And that and the game started at 545. It didn't matter whether it was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It didn't have to be a Friday or Saturday for the people to show up. They found a way to get there for a 545 game. And if we weren't playing well, uh, some of them would start leaving as we were warming up. So you can imagine you're getting ready to play, say, Vanderbilt or Tennessee or a big game and and you're out there warming up and you're getting fired up for the game and you, you look up and you see all these people starting to file out of the Coliseum because Pete's not in the varsity game. And uh, you better be in the game at halftime or have a lead. Otherwise, there may only be two or 3,000 people by the time the game was over with. But his sophomore year, of course, it was a, a hard ticket to come by. And it was such a hard ticket. And, and, and Pete packed the place for every home game that they started televising on a delayed broadcast right after the evening news that ended at 1030 central time, uh, our games would come on. The whole game would come on for the, at least the whole state of Louisiana. I think I'm not hundred percent sure where all it went in Louisiana, but so that was, you know, it was great because so, we could, wherever we went after the game, we could go and watch ourselves play the game. We just played. And of course, especially if you had a date, you could, you know, say, look up there, see, that's me up there in that game. But anyway, we had a lot of fun with it. But uh, Pete, uh, as you well know, uh, one of the greatest college players of all time, if not the greatest, and definitely the greatest scorer. But there's no question his dad helped him to be the greatest scorer because he set up the offense for him to score a lot of points, left him in the game, and even was say two minutes to go, we could be beating the team by 25 points. I don't care if it's University of Pittsburgh or Clemson or University of Texas or whatever. Instead, that's a time when you're thinking, okay, now I'm going to get mine. Well, it wasn't that. We still had to run the play for Pete and still try to get him the ball so he could score as many points as he could until the final buzzer went off. So that that was that got to be tough sometimes because everybody likes to score, and if you've noticed any time any player scores at any level, any league, I don't care if it's my grandson uh, playing basketball at only eight years old. As soon as he scores, or any other kid scores, or any adult scores, when they're running back down on defense, they just float down the court. There's no effort to get back whatsoever because you're on that high from scoring. So when you're playing with Pistol Pete and you don't get a score very few times that game, it does make it difficult. And so uh, that entered into it. But we only really had dissension in one game. And uh, and there was reason for that, but I really don't want to get into that right now. But anyway, uh, it, it came tr- tricky at times, but uh, he kept Pete in line, whether it was practice or, or even during a game. Uh, one time Pete mouthed off and he said, he said, Dad, I don't think that play is going to work. So he immediately smacked him on top of the head and he said, I'm the coach, you're the player, this is the player we're going to run, and don't you ever say that, talk like that to me again. And, of course, that earned everybody's respect that he wasn't going to put up with Pete talking back to him or trying to tell 
him how to coach. So that that scored some brownie points for Coach Maravich right there. Coach, speaking of, of, of Coach Maravich, you have told me what an innovator he was in terms of just offensive development. I think I remember one time we were having a conversation and you shared that the whole concept of screen the screener came from coach Maravich. Could you talk about that? Well, that one play, he called it wishbone and and you set up kind of like a, a wishbone uh, with basically you got uh, three players in this play, one player taken out of bounds and another player on uh, as a release valve. And basically, it's pick-to-picker action, which, uh, from what I understand, he's the one that came up with it, but everybody in the NBA copied it from him. So people have been running this play even to this day. And, of course, any pick-to-picker action now, is it makes it trickier for the defense. And uh, it's just like when you run Spain, that's pick-to-picker action again. So that type of stuff. But Coach Maravich – he was a basketball junkie himself. I mean, he learned from, he loved basketball history. And so he read any basketball book he'd get a hold of during the summer. He would try to uh, surround himself, whether it was coaches at Campbell uh, College basketball camp during the summer, he roomed with John Wooden, or he would be with like Clara B. Like I went to one basketball clinic when I was his assistant at Appalachian State, and he said, Rusty, come in here and show me your clinic notes. And and he'd say, yeah, Claire B., he invented the 2-3 the zone in, in like, say, 1952 or whatever. And he could go through, practically, you know, there's nothing new in basketball. This person invented that. That person started this. Bruce Drake, who started the break, Drake shuffle. And, you know, just like the flex offense, people think Gary – Williams invented it at Maryland. I mean, I coached against Ray Myers, who's in the NAIA Hall of Fame at Erskine College, and he ran the flex until the cows came home because he had no shot clock, until you practically begged their players to shoot the ball. But his philosophy was that we're going to the old cave in principle. We're going to turn over this offense to the defense, gets tired of playing defense, and which will get us open shot, and that worked well for him. So after – after LSU, you, you you start your coaching at App State, and then you have an opportunity to take over a program uh, in Conway, South Carolina. Talk about the the first years at Coastal with coming in, and you're you're literally building a program. Well, um, I like to say, you know, we had the fast lane in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, because we were nine miles from the ocean front, and we had the old South in Conway, which was five miles away, so we're located in between them. And so I had my players, because we didn't have any dorms, we were a commuter college. Uh, I had, uh, when Labor Day came, I was out hustling motel apartments for my players so they'd have a place to live because prior to me arriving there, they basically took all the local kids from the local area, you know, made up the team. And they weren't even, they went from a junior college to a three-year school to a four-year school and the year that I took the job in 1975 was the first year they joined the NAIA. And so uh, uh, basically they didn't even pull the bleachers out on one side. And trust me, they were wooden bleachers. I mean, the place only held about 1,500 people. And when I left there in 94, after being in the NCAA tournament in 91, 93, we still had wooden side basket boards. We had only glass boards on the on both ends, 
and we had a PE locker room we had to share with any PE class. So that was it. And so what we were able to accomplish, uh, you know, since I'd played at LSU and, and been in the big time, I really tried to make Coastal Carolina LSU in any way I could and try to give our players everything that we could possibly give them that would make it be like big time basketball. And then when Neil Gordon, who was went from Newberry to Winthrop and started a program at Winthrop, when he got the idea, let's all go division one and we'll call it the big South. I met with him and some other people and I said, wow, that sounds like a great idea. It's going to be a five-year process, but we think we've got enough colleges that maybe we can pull this off. He said, why don't you go back and talk to your president? And so I did. The, our president at that time was Dr. Fred Hicks. And uh, uh, Edward M. Singleton, he was he retired. He's a, a pre the president that hired me. And so he really didn't have that much going on. So they made him uh, commissioner of the Big South. And I talked our our president into going division one. So we all had to go through all the pain of going from NAI to division two to division one, play a division two schedule, but mainly we were playing the division one schedule why we're, why we're going division two. So uh, our records suffered because we were taking NAI teams and basically playing division one. And, and of course, by going division one, we were able to recruit a much better player, a much better athlete, and, uh, and, of course, uh, we had a, a very good university there at Coastal then. We had a great business department, a great education department, and a great marine biology department. So we had the academics that people, the parents were impressed that we had the academics for their, their son to get a good degree going to Coastal Carolina. So all that put together, we were able to build a program year by year. And then I actually became athletic director to help push the us going division one. And when I realized I'm pushing it and doing all this work to make it go from NAI division two to division one, I've got two young daughters and, and uh, basically when you're an athletic director at that level, you're solving everybody else's problems. And, you know, I had one secretary, I didn't even have an assistant AD. My assistant AD was my assistant basketball coach who was a graduate assistant. So it eventually I got a full-time assistant. Eventually I finally got, a full time and a part time, and then finally two full times at one part time, and and uh, so we were having uh, pretty much what everybody else has. But when I when I left there in 1994, this is what's so crazy. Uh, I was only making forty four thousand dollars a year, and that's how much has changed from then to now. Because now all the coaches, not in the Big South, I don't know what they're making in the Big South, but in the Sun Belt, they're all making over three hundred thousand dollars a year. So it's a huge difference. At that time, Coach, besides, you know, the business school you mentioned and obviously playing time, what was your sales pitch? You know, how were you recruiting? What was the biggest thing? Because you didn't have the gym. You know, you had a pretty – you had the beach. But was there something or a pocket where you knew you could go get some good difference-make players? Well, what I did, I, I, I would really sell all the glitter. Myrtle Beach, the, the ocean, we're the only one. A lot of colleges don't have an ocean like we do to sell. Wilmington did. We did. Even College of Charleston wasn't as close 
to the ocean as we were. Uh, they were more, they're close to the seaport, but not, we had a great situation. And because we didn't have dorms, I could put them on the second row from the ocean front. And of course, all the lights at night uh, made it extremely impressive when you brought a kid in, whether it be early fall or late spring, when, when the beach was really rocking and rolling. But the good news, like I told the parents, you know, once we start practice October the 15th, the beach is pretty much starting to close down because it's getting, getting cooler out. And so it's going to shut down. So you don't have to worry about uh, your son being involved in too many extra activities because the beach is going to quiet down. So I sold that part of it real big. I, I, I sold them that besides us playing, even when we we're NAI and then going division two, then when we did get division one, I, I said, look, our gym is not much, but the good news is we don't lose at home. It's very difficult to come in here to beat us at home, but we're going to go play Arkansas. We're going to go play South Carolina. We're going to go play Cincinnati. We're going to go play all these major majors because, number one, I needed the guarantee money to help supplement my program, and that's what we did. We we would always play 40 minutes of hell with Nolan Richardson, but i play him on a neutral court in Little Rock, not in Fayetteville. And and sometimes we would luck out like Wake Forest the first the the uh the second year we were division one, we beat Wake Forest at Wake Forest in the headlines of Atlanta uh Constitution sports page that said Coastal beat Wake. So, you know, we can start not only bringing home the guarantee check and a W, then you know you finally made it. And we were still playing out of the same gym, still recruiting players to that gym. But again, you have to sell the positive and don't talk about the negative. But if they ask you about the negative, then you gotta you gotta own up to what you know. They, we this is our gym, and you gotta tell the truth. You know you can't. I learned a long time ago. You know, kids and and young adults are and adults are smart, you can't lie to people because they're eventually going to find out that you are lying. And then once they find that out, how can they trust you? So even at pro, even at the pro level, when I dealt with all the players in, in the CBA trying to help them get to the NBA, I always try to be up, up front and truthful with them and hit them right between the eyes with the truth. And they respected me for that. And I respected them. I wanted the truth back from them. What were the guarantee checks back then? The most we I think got was uh, we got thirty thousand from Arkansas every time, and when we beat uh, Cincinnati at Cincinnati, we got thirty thousand from them. So we got thirty thousand. Beat Huggins there. They'd beaten Louisville at Louisville on a Thursday night, which Louisville was like second or third in the nation at the time, and and Huggins had great teams in, and unbelievable athletes. And uh, for us to beat them. They beat uh, Louisville on Thursday night. We beat them Saturday night in front of a packed house at Cincinnati, and but we were pretty good. That's the same that because that's the same team. I had everybody back the next year when we almost upset Indiana in '91 in the NCAA tournament. So I was fortunate uh, to you know had some good assistance, and we worked recruiting and we did everything we could to sell our program, sell the university, and get good players because we wanted to continue to beat people like Cincinnati on the road and South Carolina on the road and Wake Forest on the road. Those are big wins, especially with a guaranteed check to bring it home. 
Yeah, you're not supposed to beat them. That then the phone doesn't get answered the next year after you beat them. I'm sure that, that's correct. And 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 when they would try and and they'd say, "Well, coach, come on, we don't have that kind of money." I said, "Well, I understand you say you don't, but if you want to play us, you're buying a win. I understand that. You're you're offering us twenty to twenty five to thirty thousand, and you're doing that because you're going to bring us in, expecting to beat us. Otherwise." you wouldn't be paying us that kind of money to come. So therefore, I'm not coming for 20. If you want to pay us 30, we'll come. So that's how, you know, I would always get the pot up. And Nola Richardson was gracious enough to play us in, in Little Rock. But the thing I knew about playing Arkansas every year with that 40 minutes of hell, if we could play with them and hang in there and only get beat, you know, somewhere under 10 points or maybe it'd be 11 or 12 or whatever. But if we could hang with them the whole game and not get embarrassed, we knew going through the big South would be a cakewalk because we'd faced all that pressure and all that great defense and all those good athletes. And we'd played all those big guarantee games before Christmas. So when we, in January, when we started the big South, we were all set and ready to go against, against good competition and made it easy winning big South games. What kind of system were you running back then offensively, defensively? We, uh, pre- of course, predominantly, we, predominantly we, we played man-to-man. Everything based is based off your man-to-man defense. It should be. You can't, have, you can't just go to a, a zone and not use the same principles, you know, with the way you're playing zone. I, I like to play a matchup. And I stole from a lot of coaches, you know, like all young coaches do. You try to figure out what's – what's making Dean Smith so successful? You know, what makes Al McGuire so successful? I would go to clinic after clinic after clinic, and I would steal from all of them and then put together my playbook and what my philosophy of defense and offense and rebounding and everything else or press off was. And then, you know, the next year I may change or tweak it a little bit. But, you know, like when we beat Wake Forest at Wake Forest, um, they were shooting free throws. And I said, we're going to run a 5-12 because Richard Scandalberry, who a kid we had from London, England, I, I wanted him to shoot the three. So that meant when I call a 5-12, that means that the five man's going to take it out of bounds. The four man's going to run to the ball side block. We're going to run it down the, uh, the left sideline and the ball's going to go from the one to the two, and then the three is going to be in the place to shoot the the three. Excuse me, we ran, we ran a five twelve, not a five thirteen, and that's what happened. They they made the free throw. We immediately took it out of bounds. Three quick, two quick passes, and Scandalberry shoots the three and puts it into overtime. And so now here we are at Wake in overtime, and they realize they got their hands full. And then Scandalberry goes to the line and makes makes two free throws to win the game in overtime. So that was a big win for us. And, and uh, uh, hopefully I didn't go off to a, a tangent too much. Coach, not at all. So we're recording on a Sunday before the, the, the selection, selection committees come out, the brackets are set. Let's travel back in time to 1991 or 1993. You've, 91, you find out you're playing Indiana. In the, in the first round, walk us through the planning process, preparing for, for a Bob Knight coach team. What was that like? 
the only good news of playing Indiana was we knew they were going to play man to man the whole game. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about, am I going to have to deal against a matchup zone or triangle and two or, or diamond one or, or whatever. Uh, I knew he was going to play man and, uh, I knew they were going to run their, their motion offense and we were going to have to play physical. We're going to have to play smart. And of course we couldn't, we couldn't afford to beat ourselves because Indiana always played. They never beat themselves. And, uh, and I tried to teach our players, you know, not to reach and make stupid fouls and put the opposing team in a bonus early, which Knight, of course, teaches that. And uh, I tried to make sure that, you know, we contested every shot, but we never did like Hubie Brown says, don't foul the jump shooter. So we would never foul anybody on a shot. We would try to change a shot, but not foul them and immediately put them on the free throw line. So uh, even though we did all that in the first half, we didn't play well. We Our center, who had a great game against Jackson State in the play-in game, was just stinking up the court. He couldn't do anything right, got in foul trouble, had to put him on the bench. So we go from 6'10 to my backup center, which is 6'6". And he wasn't a, a great, what you call a great athlete either. So he was a true 6'6". He could dunk the ball, don't get me wrong, but it was a big drop-off. And uh, anyway, we go in at halftime, we're down by 16. And I told her team, uh, I thought that we were really playing soft. I didn't quite say it like that. But but we were we weren't playing near as good as we were capable of playing. We had a great team and we were playing uh, very pitiful. We were playing tentative. And uh, so anyway, they got the message time. I, I peeled the paint off the walls at halftime. They got the message. We came out the second half and uh, and started cutting into the lead. And then Brian Penny caught fire. He went 10 for 10 the second half, five threes and five twos and end up scoring 34 points. So we had it uh, with less than three minutes to go. We had a, a three to tie the game and missed it. We they we came back down. We were in a matchup zone defense at the time, and, and the ball went into the low post. Instead of uh, doubling down the low post all at once, We I had two players go down, and they, uh, unfortunately, when the – Wrong player went down to triple down instead of doubling down. They kicked it out to Damon Bailey. He knocked down a three. That gave them some breathing room back to six points. We came down and missed. And then from then on, we had to foul, and we ended up losing by 10. But, uh, you know, it was uh, Coach Knight, uh, stubborn coach that he knew we were had a run going, but he was too stubborn to to call a timeout to try to get them turned around. He was going to let them, you got yourself in this deep hole. You're going to figure a way to work yourself out of it. Well, they never figured a way to work themselves out of it. And we had a chance to beat them and we just didn't quite get over the hump. Were any of the two, two picks that year, which would have been Syracuse, Duke and Arizona were any, once the announcement was made, were you sitting there going, I'd rather play Syracuse you know, versus, uh, versus let's say Indiana case. Cause okay. I know they're going to play. I know Bayham's going to play zone the whole time, you know, like well, Knights going to play man to man. And we've got a, maybe a better chance against Syracuse zone versus yeah. Knights man to man. Well, first of all, I thought we really got a raw deal with the seeding uh, because we proved the year before beating Cincinnati and we'd beaten some people 
on, on the road. We had a great year that year. We only lost one conference game. That was on the road in overtime. And I thought at the worst we'd get was a 14th seed. We ended up getting a 15th seed. Well, when you're 15th seed, you know, you're going to play, uh, you know, a two seed, not a number one seed, but a two seed. So uh, pick your poison. Whether if it wasn't Indiana, it was going to be another hellacious team. And I knew one thing, if we, Indiana had been beaten before in the first round. So I knew we had a shot uh, at the same time. Uh, I knew that we would get a lot of exposure, which would help our program for the next year, whether we won or lost. And we did because people talk about that game more than any game to this day that was played by the coastal basketball team. And it really put the, the university on the map. And uh, it worked out. It worked out great, except, you know, I've never believed in moral victories. And it was very difficult losing the game, even the, especially when you had a chance to win it. But uh, again, uh, all things happen for a reason. And, uh, you know, it made us better players and better people for it. The 93 comes up, tournament appearance. You're a 16. And now you draw Michigan. Well, we didn't win the regular season that year, but we did win the tournament. And, uh, yeah, we draw the Fab Five, uh, Steve Fisher in Michigan. Uh, and I came up with a game plan. Ray Jackson, who's the only player on that Fab Five that did not play in the NBA, played in the CBA. And uh, so he was the weakest scorer on the team. So I took our best defensive player and I said, I'm going to let you guard Ray Jackson so you can help on everybody else. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, the way it turned out, he made his first four out of five shots. So uh, that was difficult. So then we just had to play straight up after that and uh, playing, you know, the fab five straight up on the road. And, and what the killer was Arizona, we were playing in the, uh, Tucson, Arizona at the University of Arizona's home gym. And the night before they were playing up in Phoenix and they got upset. So here Michigan is, they're just like us. They saw, saw the game, knew all about the upset. Nobody that's a top first, a top seed wants to get upset by a 15 or 16 seed or even a 14 seed. So they were totally ready to play. It's not like we, we didn't catch anybody napping. That was for sure. So Coach, they, they commenced, they commenced to beat us good. Coach, any, any epic stories from, from your, from your NCA years in terms of just battles with big name coaches, coaches that, you know, that, that maybe we're not familiar with, but just ones that you, you love to share with others. Well, uh, remember Oliver Pinnell that, uh, end up going from uh, Radford to Old Dominion to Clemson. And then he went to, he, wait a minute, he went, maybe went to Dayton then to Clemson or he went from Clemson to Dayton. But anyway, he, no, he went from Clemson to DePaul. Right. Well, anyway, uh, in the big South, we played them at home and uh, this was the 90, this was the 91 team. And uh, we didn't play very well at home. And I think we beat him by two or four points at our place, but we're still undefeated in the big South. So we go up to Radford 
to play their team. And Oliver Pinnell says, we're going to beat Coastal tonight. So he somehow he got him to give away a car at halftime. So you can imagine how packed that place was. Everybody wanted to win that car. Well, we, we of course, anytime it's less than six hours, we take a bus back then. If it was over six hours, we flew. Well, to get to Radford, it was about six hours from uh, Coastal Carolina. So anyway, before the game, our players go out because they always let them go out and shoot and get loose, get used to the rims and the, the whole surroundings. And uh, they come down. I don't go out. My assistants go out. I don't go out. So they come down. And, boy, I could tell they were they were hot under the collar about something. I didn't know what it was. Then I, they started talking. I found out that evidently the Radford students were hooting them to death. They were on them, something unbelievable. So I didn't have to do a whole lot to get them ready to play that game. So we go out. That first half, we played the most perfect half I've ever had a college team play. We did everything right you could do right. We were up by, I think, 25 at halftime. And and that was that they gave the car away. The place was packed. It was packed to the rafters. <laughs> we came out the second half, and I don't even know if there was 2,000 people still in the building. But we continued to beat them by 20-some. And so it was that, was, that was a good win there for sure. Coach, I grew up in New York, went to school up in Albany. So Albany Patroons of the CBA right. were right. a lot of fun. How about some something memorable, uh, the journeys in the old CBA? The CBA, uh, back when I was coaching the CBA, was an unbelievable great league. You typically only had about eight to 10 teams. Sometimes 12 teams would start the season. You may not end with 12, but you'd have 12 teams in it. You know, the Albany Patroons, you know, they had George Carl. They had Phil Jackson coach there and had some great coaches and, and players come through that. And the whole CBA had some great players come through it. And uh, Vashon Leonard played for me with in Oklahoma City before he was called up by Pat Riley and ended up starting for the Miami Heat for Riley and had a great NBA career. But the, in, the CBA had what you call quarter points. So every – they would keep score of just the quarter and at the same time, the game score. So, of course, at the end of the first quarter, it's the same score. Quarter score, regular score is the same. But the second quarter, you got a quarter score, and then you have a running total score. So what, what it would do, it would give you an unbelievable amount of special situations. And because of the special situations, you're trying to win every quarter so it's like the end of a game. You're doing everything you can to whether it's calling timeout to run plays, to do this, do that. And sometimes uh, some coaches would put one of their best players back in or two best players back in if they take them out to get them a rest, just, just to win that quarter point. And so you got a quarter for each quarter. So if you won every quarter, you get four points. If you won the game, you got three points. So you could win one quarter and still win the game, but only, but only end up beating somebody four, three and your playoff status was determined by your quarter points. But the great news about the quarter points at the end of the game, 
let's say you were at home and you're getting beat by 25. It's amazing how those fans would stay and see if you won the fourth quarter. And that made it great to keep people in the stands. It kept everybody involved in the game. It kept the players involved in the game in the fourth quarter when one team was getting blown out. And like I said, unbelievable amount of special situations. It made the players smarter. It made the coaches much more alert and smarter and had to stay on their toes. So it was a great, great learning experience for me. But because I'd coached in the NAI against great coaches, Hall of Famers, the NAI, I'd coached Division II, uh, just like uh, uh, Charles Oakley. Unfortunately, when we went Division II, we played Virginia Union home and home. Can you imagine going against Charles Oakley? Uh, wow. I mean, he came into our gym. I mean, he definitely had to be the biggest, baddest athlete that ever played in our gym. He was, he was a heck of a player in college, as you can imagine. So uh, it, it made it a situation where uh, you, had, you, had to, you had to grow up in a hurry. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's a life and death matter because when you cut a player that doesn't make your team, when you bring them to training camp, you got to start from 18 players and cut it to only 10. And these players have wives and kids and you got to pull the check out of his mouth and tell him, you know, you didn't make the team. What's well, a little bit different cutting a kid in college that's a walk-on than cutting a pro player that, say, started it for Kentucky, but he couldn't make your CBA team. Chucky Atkins, who played for the Orlando Magic, he couldn't make my team my third year when we won the championship. I had to trade him uh, right before training camp was over because he couldn't beat the guards out that I had. So it's uh, an unbelievable talent, unbelievable players like uh, Tim Legler. Everybody knows Tim Legler from ESPN. He was a great, great shooter. He won the NBA three-point contest. Uh, he had a 52% shooting percentage from three. I think it still stands to this day on for the NBA. Anyway, a great, great shooter. I couldn't wait to get him called. I was calling up everybody I knew in the NBA trying to tell them about Tim Lakers so somebody would call him up because he'd light us up for 40-some every game, no matter what we did to stop him. So and that's, it's, pro it's probably hard, Coach, because it's a place where no one wants to be. They all want to be somewhere else, the next level. But with Albany, they had success. But it was it was hard marketing. I remember some of the gimmicks just to try to get people there. But if you were a basketball junkie, you watched, you know, just great players, great coaches, and it was almost pennies. But it was – I figured you would have the guys buy in because they want that call-up. Well, and, and I try to make the reputation that if you come with me, I'm going to do everything I can to get you to the NBA. I never held a player back. I did everything I could pr pr to promote them to try to get them a call up because in, in, in our team set the record for call ups two years in a row. One year we had nine, the next year we had 10. And so it's important because they're trying to get to the league because if they just get two 10 days, that's more than they're going to make all year in the CBA. And if they get a 10 day, then they got a chance to get a second 10 day. If they, go past the second 10 day, then they have to sign them for the rest of the year. Then they can really make a nice paycheck. So it's just like uh, 
Calipari, who was with the New Jersey Nets. David Pendergraf was at his player personnel, who was a real good friend of mine. I knew him ever since he was assistant East Carolina, then UNC Charlotte, and I helped him get the assistant job with Billy Tubbs at TCU. Anyway, he's a, he's a head of player personnel for Calipari when he's with the Nets, so he calls me up and he says, Rusty, he said, we need a shooter. You got one? I said, I said David, I got one. I said, he can really shoot the basketball. He can knock the three down from anywhere. He said, well, we need him. I said, all right, I'll tell him. I said, how soon are you going to bring him in? He said, we'll put, we'll put him on the next flight. And that's the way it was. When they won the player, they won him yesterday. Like we could be flying through the airport in Minneapolis and trying to, we're going to maybe go to La Crosse or maybe we're going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And all at once over the speaker, it would say, Russ Bergman, please go to this phone and pick up. Uh, there's a call for you. And I'd go pick up the phone and there would be uh uh cd from the houston rockets the general manager he said coach he said i hate to tell you this but we're going to call up elmer bennett so instead of him going on with you to lacrosse we're going to put him on a plane right there at minneapolis because we want him to play for the rockets tonight so you got to figure you got to go on a lacrosse and figure out a way to beat lacrosse and they always take your best player they don't take your worst player they take your best player so again not only did you have to adjust as a coach but your players had to make that quick adjustment and make up for the, that great player that just left. Just like when we lost Bashan Leonard, he was averaging 30 points a game. He's leading the CBA in scoring. And when you lose him, wow, huge void. But luckily for me, I had a great person, head of player personnel named Jim Sleeper, who knew every player in the world, knew where all of them were, knew what they were doing. So if I had a player call up, he always had another one ready to come in. But to finish the story, uh, on uh, Damon Jones, who was a player that was called up to the New Jersey Nets uh, that played for Calipari. I think it was two nights later, I get a phone call from Pendergraft, and he's in the backseat of a limo in Miami with Calipari, Damon Jones, and Damon Jones had just made a three to beat the Miami Heat in Miami. So Calipari was calling me up to thank me for sending him Damon Jones. Well, Damon Jones ends up I, don't, I think he ended up with uh, two 10 days with the Nets. He ended up getting signed that year uh, by the Miami Heat. Uh, and, of course, Shaq was there, so it was perfect for him. Every time they double Shaq, you know, he would be able to float to the open spot and knock down the three. And all at once, he signs it. He signs with Cleveland. I said, Damon, what in the world are you doing leaving Shaq to go to Cleveland? I said, you need to go someplace where you can get open threes because he wasn't the type of – a player that could get his own three. He needed, he needed help. And he wasn't that great a pick and roll player, but he could shoot the heck out of it on spot up three. If somebody got double like Shaq, he said, coach, he said, I had to take the five-year contract with Cleveland. That's why I left Shaq because they offered me a five-year deal with Cleveland. Well, he went from playing with Cleveland to being assistant coach with Cleveland, then to be on ESPN. And uh, I'm not sure exactly where Damon is right now, but he may be with some NBA team. I'm not even sure where he's at right now. But so he had to end up a great career out of that. Coach, you mentioned, you know, sometimes having to cut someone and it's a paycheck, it's a family. Do you have a favorite story of when the big team called you and you had to walk into one of your players and, you know, tell them their dreams coming true and you're getting on that plane to go somewhere? Yes, I have. And, and that's a that's a great thrill 
to see the players' eyes light up, especially if they haven't been called up before. And uh, because when Pat Riley called me up for Bashan Leonard, I said, uh, Coach, I said, here's his apartment number. Uh, he, he's at his apartment now because uh, I couldn't remember if we had a game that night or practice that afternoon or whatever. I said, call him up. He'll be he'll be excited. I said, I, I was expecting this call. At, uh, I was kind of shocked it wasn't before now. So he said, well, I hate to take your best player, coach, but, you know, we got to win games too. I said, I understand. No big deal. You got to do what you got to do. So uh, so soon as he called up Bashan, Bashan calls me up to thank me, helping him uh, uh, make himself the player that he needed to be to play in the NBA. And uh, it was – so I said, Bashan, I said – uh, when you got, when you're going down there, he said, well, he said, he wants me to play in the game, uh, tomorrow night. He said, but I told him, I said, I want to practice with the team, a full practice with the team before I play in a game with the Miami heat. I said, wait a minute. I said, this is your first call up. And you told the Pat Riley that you wanted to have a full practice with the team before you played in a game with Miami heat. He said, yes, sir. I said, what did he say? He said, yeah, okay, well, I'll grant that wish. So, and he had a great career with Pat Riley with the with the Miami Heat. I never forget we were we were playing uh, the Florida Beach Dogs. Uh, in uh, this is why Layson wanted me on. He knew I could tell stories. I could we could get in the car. Layson and I could get in the car and drive from Myrtle Beach to L.A. and I could tell stories all the way out there and all the way back. Well, anyway, we're playing the Florida Beach Dogs. So we for in the playoffs, and I said, well, let's go down. Uh, in West Palm Beach, I said, let's go down to Miami and watch Vashon play tonight. They play the Bulls. So we'll see Jordan and see Vashon play. And so I take my radio man, my assistant, we go down there. And and uh, before the game, Vashon was always one of those players, always out getting a lot of shots up before the game. And I'm waiting. I don't see Vashon come out. Don't see Vashon come out. Well, Riley had given me a, a, an all-access pass. I said, well, I'll just go back to the locker room and I'll see Vashon and talk to him. So I go back there and he's sitting in front of his locker. And I said, V, what's up? He says, coach, I didn't know you're coming. I said, yeah. I said, we're playing in the playoffs in the finals. Matter of fact, right here uh, in West Palm beach, we're playing the Florida beach dogs for the CBA championship. He said, that's great. I said, well, how come you're not outside getting up out and on the floor, getting up shots before the game? Like you always do. He said, coach, he said, we got upset. I don't know if it's by the New Jersey nets or somebody beat them. He said, Riley tried to kill us yesterday. He didn't call him Riley. He called him Riles. Everybody called him Riles. He said, Riles tried to kill us. He said, the starters, which he was starting at the time, he said, we had a three-hour practice yesterday. He said, the starters didn't come out. We were out there three hours. He said, scrimmaging for three hours. He said, if we don't beat the Bulls tonight, it's going to be another practice like that tomorrow. And they went out and beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls that night. They sure did. Yeah, so fear sometimes does help win games. Coach, you um, you also spent some time uh, doing some work for the Utah Jazz, and talk about your experience with that that organization at the time because we're talking Jerry Sloan as, as the head coach, of course, Malone, Stockton, uh, that great run. Uh, what was what was it, what was it like working for that organization and just you know the the job that you were doing for them? Uh, true professionals. From the general manager, uh, Kevin O'Connor, 
was assistant at VMI in 1972 when I was assistant to Coach Maravich at Appalachia State University. That's when we met, you know, sharing scouting reports, uh, coaching against each other's team. And so uh, when I left uh, Boise, Idaho as their coach, he offered me a scouting job with the Jazz. And, of course, Jerry Sloan was the head coach, and they had uh, Phil Johnson was his number one assistant. Great guy, super guy. And, you know, he was the head coach of the Kansas City Kings where Mike D'Antoni played and, of course, a lot of other good players, Nate Archibald, whoever. So he knew what he was doing too. So they had two great coaches. Uh, uh, the coach that was assistant of Providence. Under, uh, Chiesa. Was Chiesa on the staff yeah. at that point? Yeah, he's the one that I gave the advanced scouting reports to. In other words, he's the one that would read over my reports and he would bring them to Jerry and to Phil. And if he had any questions, he would call me up about the report. Uh, and of course, I did everything I could to make it extremely thorough uh, to help him win the game whether I was a, a report on the Bulls or or the Nets or the the Lakers or whoever. Uh, I was living in Charlotte at the time. I was scouting the whole Southeast for the Jazz. All these college games I could see were the ACC, the SEC, the uh, the Atlantic 10, the, uh, oh, what was the, the league that, that Charlotte was in then, uh, the USA, Conference USA. So I got to see – an unbelievable amount of great games. And, uh, and of course the Hornets were lit, were still in Charlotte at the time. So that's was where I did my advanced scouting teams that were getting ready to play the jazz. I would write up a report and I would, uh, and I'd have to, the jazz, even though I did things on a computer, even the scout report, the actual advanced scout report had to be handwritten. So I had to draw it all them out write out everything about the players, draw up all the plays and FedEx it in uh, to the jazz. And then Gordy would get it, break it down, show it to, uh, and it was great when you could, you felt like you were helping them win the game. And of course, Jerry Sloan, once I spent time with him uh, preseason or at the end of the season, it was great to be around coach Sloan and staff because he was so down to earth. And when I was a senior in high school, I used to watch uh, Southern Illinois University play Evansville out of Indiana. They were both Division II at the time, and three times they played. They were both seniors in college at the same time, and Jerry Sloan and Evansville beat Walt Frazier and the uh, Southern Illinois Salukis three times by one point, one of them for the national championship. So it was it was great getting to know Jerry, but him being from Southern Illinois, he, he grew up in Southern Illinois, and me being from Central Illinois, we hit it off right away. And he's just a real down-to-earth farmer-type guy. And matter of fact, collected old tractors and all that and had a farm still back in Illinois, would go back there and and, and work it during the off-season. But a great, great professional organization. It's kind of like, I had one uh, player that was traded to the Jazz. I'll never forget this story. And, and uh, this player says to Carl Malone, he says, uh, when are they going to give us a wake-up call or when are they going to let us know what time we're leaving or calling our room or whatever? 
He said, this is Utah Jazz. He said, we're professionals here. We all have watches. We all have alarms. When they tell us to be someplace at a certain time, we're there by ourselves. Nobody calls us to wake us up. Nobody, you know, wipes our face or our butt. We take care of our own and you take care of your business. And you're going to have to be a man and own up to being a man and make sure that you do everything you can to get yourself ready to help Utah Jazz win games. We're professionals here. So I want to ask you two questions. One, as an advanced scout, pretty much everybody in the league at that point is running basically the same thing. Like they're running floppy, they're running zipper, they're running, you know, middle pick and roll, maybe some side pick and roll. And then you have the triangle. So as a scout, the other ones are, I guess, are pretty easy. You can kind of, you know, kind of break it down and then kind of determine, okay, you know, their strengths coming off the, the ball screen, you know, the, 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 the different calls for the, you know, the different actions. How hard was it to scout the triangle offense? First of all, any team that I got ready to scout for the Jazz, I would make sure that I would videotape those on my TV at my house and watch as many games of that team I was getting ready to scout in person. So I had a pretty good idea of all their plays before I got to the real game. I wouldn't have typically their calls unless it was a visual call because on the TV, you couldn't hear all the play calls. Well, you want to make sure you not only have the visual, but you want the verbal call uh, because uh, you want every advantage you can if you know the play is coming. But uh, there was there was more difference in plays then, much more than there are now for sure. I mean, now with D'Antoni bringing the 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 wide open floor with with basically no post player in there, and the the five out uh, back then, there was a lot of different things that coaches were running just like Jerry Sloan. I mean, they had all these plays and they ran them immaculately. And it didn't matter if they, the other team knew they were coming, you know, between Stockton Malone and everybody else that played for the Jazz, they executed. They're kind of like Vince Lombardi, you know, we're going to run this off right tackle. You know it's coming, but we're going to execute it so well, we're still going to gain five yards on the play. And same way with the Jazz. They read – they took what the defense gave them and, and beat you. Okay. As a scout, as you're looking at personnel, best player that you scouted, that you're like, you've got to draft this player. You, you've got to get this player. Oh, boy. Uh, the the first unknown player, I mean, a lot of players, you got a good idea that they're they're, they're already on the list from being a freshman or sophomore or whatever. And of course, by the time I started scouting, they were going straight to the NBA. And uh, uh, the kid that played at UNC Charlotte, uh, oh, wow. Uh, they were playing, uh, they were playing at NC State. Uh, Left-handed, I can't get his name out now, but as soon as I saw that game, I said, this kid can play in the league. You know, I immediately uh, called up uh, 
David Fredman, I said, this kid can play in the league. I said, we, we need to get all over him and get some people to watch him other than just my opinion. But he was one, he was an unknown name, uh, you know, a little bit different than, than the kid that played for Billy Tubbs at TCU that was leading the nation and scoring that type of thing. I mean, everybody knew that, that he had a chance to play in the league because he was leading the na- nation in scoring. I can't get the players. I apologize. I can't get the na- player's name out that played for UNC Charlottetown, but it wasn't Cornbread Max- Maxwell. This was way before then. Gotcha. So Way after then. So let's talk about now suddenly you're coaching overseas. How did you – how did you get over there? How how did the connection start? And then now, you're, you're coaching in Russia. You're you're working with with uh, with uh, Scariola and uh, and and Sergey and 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 some of the coaches that you've uh, had the opportunity to uh, to work with. Well, the Russian that brought me over, uh, I was with him for a year and a half, and then the owners thought that he wasn't doing a good enough job, and uh, so. And we had come a long, long ways. I mean, we were doing, we were doing well, but but he had talked the owners into putting so much money. See, the team out of St. Petersburg folded preseason, and so he talked the owners into giving him a lot more money. And let's sign these good players from St. Petersburg. Well, when we lost some games, because uh, right before Christmas, he said, "Coach," he said, he said we got to make sure that we win these next couple of games. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he said, I'm going to recommend you to be the head coach. But he said, if we don't win these next couple of games, he said, they're going to fire me. I said, are you serious? Because he had started the team. He started the team and built it. And then he got to the point where he ran out of money. So he had to, he had to talk some people into being owners so he could have more money to get better players. Just like Devin Booker's dad, dad Melvin Booker played for us. You know, back then he was making six hundred, eight hundred thousand for us a year. Uh, Delfino and Garbajosa, they were making two million because they came from the Toronto Raptors. But anyway, it uh, it was a situation where uh, I said, "Well, let's win the next couple of games, and let's keep your job. Let's worry about you." He, I said, you brought me over here. Let's do everything we can to keep your job. And uh, so we were playing, we we're playing at, um, at uh, uh, Moscow Dynamo. And David Blot was also co- coaching in Moscow. He was coaching a different, uh, there was Moscow Dynamo region. Then there was Moscow Dynamo where David Blot. Well, we were playing Moscow Dynamo region. And I noticed, a lot of photographers were taking pictures of me before the game. And I said, well, I know what they're doing. They're, they're getting pictures ready just in case we lose this game and my head coach gets fired. And that's exactly what they were doing. And luckily we won that game, but I knew uh, coming back after Christmas with the schedule we had that he probably wasn't going to keep his, because we had Seska when we came back, which was typically a loss because they were so good. I mean, they, they had, you know, it's the Red Army. So they had all this money behind them. They had the best players. And, of course, Messina was a great coach, too. So that's a tough combination to beat. Well, anyway, uh, so he ends up, like I said, he got fired and I took over. And uh, 
I said, I look, I don't want to take over. And this is a typical Russian story. I don't want to take over unless I can finish the season. I want to be the head coach the rest of the time. I said, if you see fit that you're going to have to fire me, I said, I understand, but you're going to have to pay me for the rest of the year, whether you fire me or not. Well, uh, we win. Uh, let's see. We win the first game by 25, 26 points or whatever. And then we play uh, Luke Oil out of, out of Bulgaria. And they were all afraid that it was, it was a, uh, it was a uh, Euro Cup game, and they wanted to make sure that we made the Euro Cup playoffs. It's going to be real important that we win this game. And the mayor of Moscow region uh, comes to my practice, and he's got two bodyguards. Anybody has any power in Russia always has at least one bodyguard, most of the time two, especially if you're a mayor. And so he comes over there, and he's talking Russian so fast. I said, and and this was only my second year, so I understood some Russian, but not when they just rattled on. So I had a translator, and he said, Coach, we really want you to win this game against Luke Oil. I said, I understand. I want to win this game too. So he always came dressed to the nines, you know, always had an um, immaculate suit on, looked good. So I took his lapel, and I rubbed it with my fingers. I said, boy, I can tell that's some nice material. That's a nice suit you got on there. He said, I'll tell you what, coach, you win this game tomorrow night. And I'll, I'll have a, I'll buy you a tailor-made suit like this. I said, that's a, that's a deal. So I had our players totally mentally ready to play because, and physically ready to play. And a team that we had lost at Luke Oil in, in Bulgaria, we lost to him by seven. Well, at the end of the third quarter, we were up by 35. So I called the dogs off and we ended up winning, I don't know, by 27, 28 points or whatever. And uh, so anyway, he comes to practice the next day and he gives me a gift certificate from the richest mall in Moscow, which has all these tailors where you can get your suit tailor. Uh, it gives me uh, $2,000 to get a, a suit tailor. Yeah. But, you know, I'd signed a contract to coach the rest of the year. Well, from there, we go to Samara and we play two Russian teams and we win both those games by 25 plus. And so we're 4-0. And uh, at that time, I'm the only undefeated, undefeated team in, in Europe. I never lost a game. So after the game's over, the, the general manager who was in charge of, of taking care of the referees, which is another story. Anyway, <laughs> he comes, he calls me down to his room. So I go down there and I said, yes, sir. And he spoke good English and Victor, he said, he says, uh, there's going to be a change. He said, the owners want to bring in a new coach. I said, really? I said, we're four and oh, we're beating everybody by 25 points. He said, he said, they, they don't feel comfortable because you don't speak fluent Russian. And I didn't speak very good Russian at all. And uh, I said, well, I said, all the Russian players don't have any problem understanding me. I said, everybody I'm dealing with, we don't have a problem. I said, we just, you know, all these games we were winning. He said, well, coach, he said, you're doing a great job. We're going to give you a big bonus when we get back for winning these four games. And we want you to stay and be the new coach's assistant and help him just like you were helping. So 
I can either take my ego and go home or I can stay there and make money. And they were paying me in cash. So I said to myself, I said, well, I'm going to swallow my ego. I'm going to stay here and make that cash. So we get back to Moscow. He sets me down. He peels off $15,000 worth of $100 bills from winning those four games. And then they bring in the new coach, which was Castus Kimzura. And so the same thing happened to him about two and a half years later, he gets fired and they bring in Scariola and well, and Scariola wanted to keep me. And so anyway, uh, that's just one of the stories. I can Jeff, tell Jeff we could, we could be here all night with the stories that coach have told me. And I know there's some that we cannot tell, but I just, I can assure you, we, we would both be laughing we would be rolling laughing with some of the stories and, and, and God knows coach how much money they still owe you with some of these clubs that, I mean, you're still collecting, right? Yeah, the, the team, the Krasny Creeley, the team Samara still owes me 30,000 bonus money. And, uh, they folded so they wouldn't have to pay me anyway. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We're down in, uh, cause all the ha- what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, word, uh, we're in uh, Ukraine, and we're getting ready to. We always chartered a jet, and the next we win the game. Next day, we're flying somewhere else to play a game, and and uh, we're waiting for them to de-ice a plane because you know it's it's cold over there. It's when dead dead winter, it's cold. So they come on the plane and say we we can't de-ice the wings, and so. They, they said, well, why not? And, of course, all this is going on in Russia. And uh, they said, well, we, we need money. We need some money. So I said, oh, man. I said, I guess we're going back to the hotel or whatever. I said, I don't know how much it's going to charge, but surely we're not carrying that much money with us. So they needed $20,000 to de-ice the wings. 20000 American dollars cash. This wasn't rubles. This was American dollars cash. I said, oh, there's no way we got that kind of money. So the guy who's a former KGB, who is a KGB guy with Putin, which is another story. He, I drank vodka with him one night, and he started telling me stories about him and Putin being KGB guys and some of the things they did. So he, he's definitely ruthless, and uh, he, he will he will have him or himself or somebody put you away in a heart, heartbeat. They won't even blink an eye. But anyway... So he tells a KGB guy who's the head of our security, former KGB guy, bring me that black bag. Now, this is when I had the guy that brought me over there who was a general manager and head coach who was Russian. So he opens up that black bag. He reaches in there. He pulls out $20,000 in cash and gives it to the guy. They go out, de-ice the plane, and we fly off. Crazy, huh? Oh, that's great. That's great. What a perfect segue, Coach. I am, I would say, a vodka connoisseur. I enjoy uh, nothing like Mother Russia. Maybe just some stories about vodka for breakfast or negotiations sitting up. But uh, how, how much did vodka warm you up during your time over there? They... If they had any kind of meal going on that wasn't a team meal, 
before or after the game. Uh, around the team, they would never have alcohol unless it was after a home game when we started having our own little big meal for the players, and they would always have bottles of wine and bottles of vodka on the table. Well, the thing that shocked me the most, I guess, about Russia's drinking vodka is they always drink vodka straight up. They never mix it. Never. They may chase it with apple juice or orange juice or tomato juice or some kind of juice, but they never mix their vodka because they have, I don't know how many thousands of different kind of vodkas they have in Russia. Of course, Beluga is a number one Russian vodka. Uh, they taste it and they have it. They can taste the vodka and decipher how good a vodka it is. And this is the same way, not just men, but it's the same way with women and for uh, young women. Like you can see six young women sitting at a table and they'll have maybe two or three bottles of vodka and a bunch of juices there and none of them mix it. They all drink it straight up. They may chase it, but they don't ever mix that vodka. So they have vodka every any any kind of ordeal they got it and they got plenty of it and they're not bashful with it and so they're they're raised on vodka that's great i i always share stories recruiting i always felt safe going into the inner city the high rises because i was kind of protected because i was the basketball coach trying to you know help someone get a better life but as a coach over there, any did you ever feel safety? Any concerns? Uh, you know, the Russian mafia is still alive and well, and I knew that. And so I tried to make sure if I thought anybody, because, you know, just like the old American uh, mafia that was in the New Jersey, New York area, you can kind of, most of the time, you can kind of spot what somebody that might be a wise guy. Well, it was the same way over there. You could kind of tell they're typically they're driving a black Mercedes or some kind of black car. Uh, you know, they got the black leather jacket or whatever, and they got dark clothes on. And uh, you just made sure that you didn't do anything wrong around anybody that you had a pretty good idea. They were Russian mafia. And uh, because every winter when the snow would melt, some dead bodies would show up. So <laughs> you think I'm joking. I'm not. And uh, so you had to make sure that if you went against them, you better, you better be prepared for a war. Or if you went against Putin or his government, uh, just like all the different journalists and all whatever that you, that was poisoned or found dead or whatever. I mean, that's just like the free press now. They won't they they won't let any free press come out of Russia right now. So coach, were, you, were you there? Were you there when they shot the women's coach? When when the when yes. the, the, the knocked off the they, women's coach. He wasn't the women's coach. He was the owner of the women's team in Moscow, and he at one time was the owner of a big time soccer football team in in England, but he had gotten into to the women's basketball. And of course, all the WNBA players go over and play in the Russian league and play in the, in the Euro league for women. They make more money over there than they do in the WNBA. And this is the guy that owned the team that had Sue Bird and all of them playing on it. 
and in broad daylight, uh, he was shot in downtown Moscow. Somebody just, you know, like you see the mafia, they open up the car door or whatever and, and blow you away. And that's what happened to him right there in broad daylight. All right, let's have some fun, Lason. Let's fire some fun questions to Coach. We can keep going. Coach, give me your couple or your Mount Rushmore of coaches that you've gone head-to-head against. That I've coached against? Yes, sir. Oh, wow. That That is – wow. Hmm. Uh, Bob Huggins is a hell of a coach. Uh, of course, Bobby Knight is a hell of a coach. Uh, um, Flip Saunders, you know, that he coached in the CBA, uh, Mo Mahone, who coached for the Sioux Falls Sky Force. He also at one time was interim head coach for the Spurs back, uh, Let's see. Uh, oh boy, uh, Mike Tebow is, is a—he's not on my Mount Rushmore, but Mike Tebow, who won a WNBA championship, used to be the CBA coach for the Omaha Racers. Uh, I'm trying to think of all these good uh, college coaches. Uh, John Cress is a heck of a coach. Nobody executes their offense with better timing than John Cress used to be at College of Charleston. Uh, does did a great job before he retired. Uh, I coached against Jim Balbano. Uh, Jim Balbano, in my opinion, uh, he was a great coach because he was a great motivator and a great recruiter. Uh, he tried a lot of different things whether it was a triangle and two or box of one or whatever. And he got his players to believe in him and, and did pretty well with it. But uh, I wouldn't call him a great X and O coach. Uh, I, you know, I coached against Joe Hall when, when I was a freshman coach at LSU and uh, he was coaching the freshman team at Kentucky. Uh, Red Myers, who's in the NAA, NAIA hall of fame from Erskine was a great coach back in the day. Uh, Oh wow! Uh, I know I'm, I'm I'm leaving out all kind of coaches and not coming right to the tip of my tongue right now. But uh, no, you gave us a you gave us a list. Let me ask you one more: Who was the one recruit you had that got away? Hmm. Well, one of them was Tony Duncan, but luckily for me, I got him back. I, I recruited him in high school and lost him to Jacksonville University, University of Jacksonville. And uh, he didn't like it down there and wanted to come home and got him back. He was player of the year in the Big South all four years, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. To this day, no but, no but player has ever done that in any conference. And with uh, one and done, I don't think it would ever happen again. So he was one that got away, but I got back because if I ever recruited anybody that was that good, uh, I tried to make sure I left the door open. Uh, and luckily I left the door open for him. Uh, I tried not to dwell on the ones I lost that much, <laughs> uh, but uh, I had a 6'10 kid out of Cincinnati named Craig Hodges that as a freshman had 22 against South Carolina state at home, 
would have been a great, great player at Coastal Carolina. But I typically had a rule where you get strike three and you're out. Well, he he I gave him strike four and he still struck out. And uh, but, you know, 2020 hindsight, if I had to do over again, I think I would have suspended him for a month or more instead of uh, getting rid of him, maybe because he just, you know, these kids are just, you know, young and dumb and and they just haven't had the experiences. Now, don't get me wrong. He was a good student, good kid. And he said he made a huge mistake and wish he would have never screwed up and he could have played his whole career at Coastal because he transferred to George Mason. Now, they gave him a scholarship after I uh, cut him from the team uh, for breaking rules. But anyway, uh, oh, boy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Allen, Ray Allen, you know, right over here in, in Florence. But, you know, I really didn't have a shot. Once Connecticut got involved with him, I didn't really have a shot at him. and. Uh, you know, there was, oh gosh, I don't know. I, all I think of is now the, I think of a lot of the CBA players that were so good, you know, cause I, I helped the 30 of them get called up to the NBA. And uh, to me, you know, I'm real, that's one, one stat that I'm really, really proud of is helping all those guys get to the league. All right, coach. Uh, two more questions um, from all your coaching internationally best international player that you've coached against? Mm. Wow. And I know you've seen some good ones over, you know, especially in, you know, in, in Russia, either played for Seska or just, you know, in all the, the games you played over there, who, who would you say was the best? Well, I'm, while I'm thinking about that, first person that comes to my name is a guy named Victor Diaz out of Venezuela. I coached in the summer league over in Venezuela. He lit us up for 40 some both nights. He was unbelievable, one of the best shooters I've ever seen, and could shoot it deep. Seska uh, had, uh, oh boy, they had they had a lot of good players. I mean, just a lot of former NBA players. Uh, well, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Rubio. Ricky Rubio, uh, first time I coached against him, he was only 16 years old and he was taking the place of Elmer Bennett, who played for me in the CBA and was our MVP when we won the CBA championship. And show me he, too. he was a starting guard for Juventud. Yeah, Ricky mm -hmm. Rubio was his backup and Elmer was six. So he got to play. I mean, we beat him at our place, but you know, in that night, you know, that's the first time I'd seen Ricky Rubio. And back then he mainly, was a, a ball handler and a passer. He was not a scorer. And because of the rules in the European League and the NBA, he had a much, much more difficult time getting to the basket and scoring in Europe than he did in the NBA because of the NBA defensive rules with the, you got to be three feet from your man. And, uh, uh, and you've also spent you also spent some time with Alexi Shved as Shved as well. I remember you telling me the story about how you how you talked to him and, and really kind of helped kind of yeah. build his confidence. Yeah. He uh Alex Svet, who played for I think he played for Minnesota, right? Uh a great point guard. He's about six five point guard that could, you know, really handle it. He reminds you of Pistol Pete, a young Pistol Pete, 
had great peripheral vision, really pushed the ball and really had great vision of the court and could also shoot the ball. And, uh, but he came back to Russia to play just because he, they were going to pay him more than he was getting paid in the NBA. And he's only playing two games a week instead of three or four games a week, making more money and back in his home uh, country. So, you know, that's that way with a lot of them. Uh, but most of those are, are, you know, there's only a few countries that pay that well. Russia, uh, Turkey plays well. Spain plays well. The Spanish league is typically the best league from top to bottom as far as the teams are concerned. So they're spending quite a bit of money. Italy used to be back when D'Antoni, Mike D'Antoni was playing there. There was a lot of great teams in Italy, but they infiltrated with so many Americans that the Italians got tired of going to see five Americans play and kind of ruined professional basketball in Italy for a while. And, uh, and that's why when I was with the team in Russia, half your team had to be Russians uh, on out of your 12-man team, six of them had to be Russian. Now, if you're playing in a European game, you could have seven non-Russians and five Russians dressed out. So you had to have one uh, non-Russian player completely not dress out that game. But uh, uh, wow, I'm trying to think of the name of all these players now. They escape escape me. It's been so long since I've been over there. But uh, I can see their faces. I can't get their names out. But they some some great players that whether they're you know. Uh, uh, like the the guy who does the uh, oh he does a commercial with the I think it's a the drink commercial I can't remember if it's Mountain Dew or whatever it has the big ears from Lithuania uh, he we coached against him in Lithuania and he's played in the NBA uh, we had uh, uh, Matchy Lampy who played for the Knicks and I don't know who all he played for. He played for Oklahoma city. Uh, he played for us at Hemke. Uh, uh, Daniel Ewing that played at Duke played for us at Hemke. We had, uh, 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 from North Carolina, we had, uh, uh, wow. I can see his face. And I can't get his name out. Uh, from Germany. Golly. Well, um, I know you had Delfino, who was a part of the the, yeah. the, the, the Argentinian national team and that, that, right. that and great then, early run. And then you had Garbajosa, Garbajosa who was on the Spanish. Spanish national team. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So last, last question. Um, tournament, NCAA tournament coming up. I, I know you still have a lot of friends in, in the coaching business who uh, – I know one for certain the guy that you'll be watching is University of Houston and, and Calvin Sampson. Any yeah, other coaches I'm, in the tournament that uh, that you're you're still close to that you're going to be watching? I was really happy to see Kelvin Sampson get to the Final Four last year. Kelvin is such a really good guy. I coached against him. I'm so old. I coached against him when he played in in college at Pembroke State, and he was a hustler. Dove on the floor, took charges, and just tough tough nut. And that's the way he coaches to this day. And, and, and of course I was pulling for him today to win their conference tournament and they did. And uh, hopefully he'll have a, another great run in the tournament, but 
also Rick Barnes. I, I saw went up and saw them play against South Carolina. And then I was really – I told him, I texted him and, and was wished him hoping he wins the SEC tournament. And hopefully uh, he goes does well in the NCAA tournament. He's a great, great guy, great human being, and uh, does a great job coaching. Uh, Chris Beard, who's now with the University of Texas, does an unbelievable job coaching, really a good guy. Uh, of course, Huggins, I wish he was in the tournament, but he's he's had his day in the sun but he didn't make it this year. I'm sure he'll have a great recruiting class because he's not going to have two losing seasons in a row, that's for sure. But uh, um, yeah, I, I talked to you know my former assistant, Michael Murphy, uh, who's at Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, I keep up with a, a lot of different coaches, like the, the, the assistant who was at Texas Tech that's now the head coach at Texas Tech has had a great year. Uh, I know Bill Self at Kansas. Uh, he's had another unbelievable year where they won the regular season and the uh, Big 12 tournament championship. Uh, the the coach at uh, that was at Winthrop that now is at College of Charleston, uh, good guy, did it, has done a great job there too. I could just go on and on. I just can't pull up all these names all at once. Not a problem. Not a problem. Well, well Jeff, like I said, we could do this again and, and, and just more stories. This is this is why I love hanging out with Coach because we will start – I'll usually talk – we'll talk about something in Europe and we'll get we'll, – we'll start talking about X's and O's and stories and then bourbon, cigars. It's like <laughs> the life. It's, it's like the best way to spend time, and, and it, it's, it's so much fun. And Beluga well, Vodka. That's it. That's – well, we might have to throw some of that in next time instead of the bourbon. But um, Lace and I both, we like our bourbon, that's for sure. But I know we were flying one quick story. We were flying back from uh, from Samara, and uh, their general manager was going to catch a, a ride on our private jet back to Moscow. And so our head coach and general manager didn't drink at all. And he says, Coach, he said, will you do me a favor and drink vodka with their general manager on the way back to kind of keep him company? <laughs> It's hard to drink vodka with a Russian because they'll put you under the table every time. Oh, that's great. Well, coaches, thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode of the Fifth Quarter Conversations Beyond the X's and O's, and uh, we'll connect with you again soon. All right, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to it anytime. You know, I, I love talking hoops, and I'm going to have to – Write all these players down and coaches down so I got these names in front of me. I just can't pull them up like I used to. Not a problem, Coach. All right. Y'all have a great